Hello again. It's your host, Sophia, bringing you another episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome to our fascinating corner of the podcasting universe. And if you're returning from a past episode, welcome back. I'm happy to see you. We are surrounded by water. We drink it, shower in it, grow food in it, transport goods across it. It even makes up the majority of our bodies. And today, that is exactly what we are going to be talking about, our connection to water. In today's rapidly changing world, where rivers, once symbols of purity and life, now struggle under the weight of pollution, we find guidance in the wisdom of ancient traditions. Our guest today, Dr. David Haberman, a professor of religious studies at Indiana University Bloomington, specializing in the Hindu religious traditions of India, is not just a scholar, but a bridge between worlds. Author of River of Love in an Age of Pollution, Dr. Haberman combines his extensive knowledge of Indian religious traditions with a deep commitment to environmental issues. His work offers a unique perspective on how spiritual insights can lead to practical solutions for environmental challenges. Join us as we explore with Dr. Haberman how the sacred waters of India's spiritual landscape can inspire a global movement for cleaner, healthier rivers. Let's dive into the conversation which promises to be as enlightening as it is urgent. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is a Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. I just wanted to start with a quote that is at the start of chapter one, and it's by Henry David Thoreau, and it goes, we are slow to realize water, the beauty and magic of it. It is interestingly strange to us forever. And I was I was really drawn to this quote because I kind of see it as like a vehicle for understanding the connection between like the spiritual connection that people feel to nature and how they use it to understand the divine. And so I was hoping that to begin with, you could kind of expand on this connection that this quote touches on. Yes. Well, first, it's a pleasure to talk with you today. So uh, yeah, I also like this quote. That's why I use it as the epigraph for my first chapter in the book. I suppose I like it for two reasons. First, um, those words, the beauty and magic of it. That to me just uh, gives expression to the sense of wonder and reverence towards water. And I think we'll be talking about that today. That just uh, that magical quality, to put it in Thoreau's terms, of water. Um, But he goes on to say then that it is interestingly strange to us forever. And I, I think that too says a great deal to me, that it is strange forever. That is that we never have it completely figured out. There's no sense of absolute knowledge of anything in the world. So I think there's a sense of humbleness with that. Um, There's a sense of an openness to uncertainty with that. And that's important uh, to me and what I'm trying to do in the book and also as a student of religion myself, because 
As a uh, lifelong student of religious studies, I think if there's one lesson I've really learned, it's that nothing is um, really anything set for human beings. And therefore, we find great variability in the human um, understanding of the world, the, the conception of the world, and therefore behavior in the world itself. And we are... We're not born with a sense of reality, with a sense of what the world is all about, but rather we acquire that through our socialization process, being brought up in a particular family in a particular time and place. And in a sense, uh, a cultural lens is welded on to our eyes. And it's through that lens that we regard the whole world. And as a student of religion, I've just um, become very interested in the different worlds that appear through different cultural lenses. And as a human being, these are all available to us. Many cultures have seen the more than human world as animated with divine presence. And um, religious studies explores other worldviews with a sense of their being equally valid, at least, to our own sense of reality. And all of that is expressed to me, at least in in David uh, Thoreau's Henry David Thoreau's quote there. So in in the book, you go on to talk um, specifically about one river, the Yamuna River, if that that's the right pronunciation. I, I was wondering if you could tell me more about why you chose this this river specifically, and what significance it holds to Indian culture and religion? Yeah, first, why did I get involved? Um, I, it was motivated by a sense of pain. Mm -hmm. and, uh, specifically, what I mean by that is um, in 1980-81, I was in India for a full year, living in a town on the bank of the Yamuna River. The name of the town is Brindavan. And I was there as a um, budding Sanskrit student reading a 16th century Sanskrit text. And I would spend, it went during the hot season, and it gets very hot in northern India in the summertime. I would sit in front of a swamp cooler translating Sanskrit texts. And in the evening, when it began to cool off, I would venture down to the river and join a carnivalesque scene of people playing in the river. And I myself swam in the river up to two hours at a time. It was just such a lovely experience. Over the years, I watched that river become extremely polluted, where according to some scientists, the stretch of the Yamuna south of Delhi and the town I was living in is about 100 miles south of Delhi, is the most polluted stretch of river in India. And so for me, going from swimming with enjoyment in a river for hours to not even wanting to put my foot in the river became uh, that source of pain. And also to see how the river pollution was affecting the health of my friends in the town of Brindavan. And as a student of religion, when I, I guess when I see some kind of problem, um, my way is to begin to study it, to understand it better, 
and see what I might express through my own works, books to, that comes out of that. So the motivation was really pain. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think you also asked what what significance does this river hold in um, Indian religious culture, Hindu religious yeah. culture specifically. There's references to the river that go back in texts 3,000 years, Rig Veda, a very old text in India. So um, river worship, river reverence has, has a, a long, long history in India, and that just picks up over time so that in later texts, um, the methods of worship or the motivations for worship are laid out. The more anthropological work I do focuses on what people are doing today, and river worship certainly continues uh, in India today. We might talk about how the pollution of that river has diminished um, some of what is done, but the worship of rivers is still alive and well in India today. Where does that come from? Because I, I guess in a lot of Western cultures, you don't see that as much. What about uh, Hinduism or maybe Indian culture specifically makes that more prevalent? Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to make a divide between Western and... Um, yeah, that's true. And, uh, what's often called Eastern cultures or Asian. So let me just think more specifically about um, cultures of the United States and Northern Europe and opposed to India. And the religious worldviews in some sense are quite different in that Hinduism is a religious tradition that does not make a sharp divide between the creator and creation. Um, and it is a more holistic viewing things where divinity, there is a transcendent dimension that goes beyond anything we can perceive with our senses. But the world that we can ex experience with our senses is uh, still a divine world in that context. So this has been expressed in early text and continues to be expressed by uh, Hindus today, whereas in Western traditions that have tended to maintain a sharp divide between the creator and creation, divinity is removed from physicality in the world itself. And that leads to a very different understanding of uh, natural entities such as a river. This concept of um, the river being a goddess, where does, can you elaborate, um, I guess, why that is and how it plays out in the, the way that people treat the river or the river's significance plays out in, I guess, in the real world? There are many ways of looking at the complex nature of reality so that mm -hmm. The basic Hindu understanding of reality is one that it, of radical interconnection. That is, it all comes from a one, but it is a one that gets diversified into, uh, into a multitude. And that then gets thought about in a variety of ways. So mm -hmm. with regard to the Yamna, let's say those who have written theological texts on the Yamna River, Think of her as having, and she is a she in Indian culture, think of her as having three dimensions. 
The first one is the realm of the physical world that we can experience with our senses. And the river at that level is water, that water we can touch and feel, right? The second level is a level that is often just translated as a spiritual level. That is that the river is non-different from everything. And since everything is divine from an ultimate philosophical perspective, she participates in that. And in some sense, that's what draws pilgrims to her shores. But the most important dimension is the dimension of the goddess, uh, so Yamna is both a physical river as well as a goddess, and she, in um, Hindu understanding, is perhaps the most exquisite goddess of love that is there. And that's why the solution, I think, is so painful for those who are devoted to her. And that is a dimension that is experienced through love through love itself, through loving devotion, that it's not a dimension that is available to anyone the way the water is available to anyone who walks up to the shore of the river. And we might talk more about the nature of that love, because I think that gets us into some of the religious understandings and religious practices um, associated with the devotion to the Yamuna River. Is there, I guess, if you're someone who isn't exposed um, to Hinduism or to more like Asian spirituality, as you were saying, is there, are there any particular like lessons that someone who's interested in preventing water pollution could take from those? Maybe if they have like a particular river or lake or bay in their area that are, that is suffering from a certain kind of pollution? Yes. Um, and again, we might talk more about that, but First, I want to say that even in the Western religious traditions, a lot is going on that has been driven by the environmental crises. So I would say that worldwide, the amount of literature being produced on eco-theology is coming out of Christian traditions today, which has been, especially in its Protestant forms, mm -hmm. a type of um, Christianity that maintains very strongly the boundary between creator and creation. I think that's that's changing. I think in a sense, the environmental crisis has led those who at least uh, have the courage to face what's going on to an understanding that we really haven't gotten things right. That, that human understanding and presence in the world in some sense is deeply flawed. And mm -hmm. so as I say, a lot is coming out uh, these days in, in all religious traditions. What one can do locally, maybe first just to begin, um, maybe I'll have more to say as our conversation continues, but returning to that quote by uh, Henry David Thoreau, just uh, first approaching a body of water with openness, with a sense that the, the understanding we bring to it is not what it is, and mm -hmm. openness to the world much beyond our narrow conception of it, to try to spend time with that body of water and develop some kind of relationship with it. Psychologists and eco-psychologists in particular say that we care for those things that we feel connected to. So... Mm -hmm. First, it's, it's experiencing that water, even in some recreational sense, swimming in it, kayaking on it, um, whatever that might be, spending time with that, but then opening oneself 
to that which can't be seen with a strictly utilitarian view of that body of water. Yeah, I like what you said um, about we care for what we feel connected to. I was wondering, do you think that I guess like on the flip side, is there is there any anything that religious views have contributed to feeling disconnected or is that largely other like anthropological forces at play? Well, the disconnect, the reasons for the disconnect are, are complicated, and I wouldn't want to reduce it to religion. Um, we've seen industrial developments, and we've seen economic systems uh, go globally now that tend to discourage a close interaction. Um, the world is is a warehouse for human use more than anything in, in certain um, understandings of the world from economic perspectives. But religion has, I think, played a part, and it's hard to parse out religious developments and economic and political cultural developments, <laughs> yeah. all one big ball of wax in some sense. The yeah. 16th century in Europe was a very a significant century. It was a very bloody century. It was a century mm -hmm. of the wars between Protestants and, and, and Catholics that we call today. And it was a war about idolatry. I think one of the best books that's been written on this is a book by um, a, a Yale professor, Carlos Edai. And he's written a book called War Against the Idols. And he says at the beginning of that book that the 16th century, it moves into the 17th century of the development of what we call the natural sciences, was a century in which Christianity was transformed from religion of imminence, that is, an understanding of divine in the physical world, to a religion of radical transcendence where divinity gets removed. And some of the yeah. those who articulated those um, understandings that grew into what we call Protestantism, like John Calvin, said that any regard of the visible world as divine, as, as God, is an idolatrous view. Um, which is a very, very negative accusation within Christianity. Right. And so that we see the development between certain scientific worldviews, which were explicitly, if you look at the literature, trying to articulate the sciences in a way that were, quote, not idolatrous and certain religious developments. Yeah, and I suppose it's also to say that we need to feel connected to our physicality is also it's also like connected in what way connected spiritually or connected in terms of thinking politically about it thinking economically about it thinking in thinking aesthetically about it i i suppose there, there's also lots of different ways to be connected and lots of different components to that connection like it's never a closed system of just one thing that contributes to it which makes it more complicated <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's it in ways. And again, developments are happening with the, within all the traditions that we're mentioning here. There was, um, there was another quote that really stood out to me by uh, Lina Gupta, and it was, external pollution begins with internal pollution. The pollution of thinking we are utterly separate from the rest of existence. Uh, which I suppose 
kind of ties into what we were talking about just now. What unique perspectives do Indian environmental activists bring to the, the globe, this global conversation on environmentalism? Well, a great question. I think this is the key in many ways. Um, this is part of what I would call that Vedantic teaching that one finds within um, Hindu, in, uh, Indian Hinduism. And um, it, it's expressed in so many ways. I'm thinking of a, a text that dates back 2,800 years. It says, um, Sarvam Kalvidam Brahma, that is that everything is God and God is everything. If we want to translate one term in there as God, um, everything mm -hmm. radically connected uh, and yet still wildly diverse in, in ways. And, and so that it's that inability to see that, that Lena Gupta in that quote is, I think, drawing attention to. That internal pollution is a sense of separateness from the world. Humans have somehow come to the notion that we can go it alone on the planet. <laughs> and I think we're understanding through our sciences, through the environmental crises, through religious developments, that that's really a flawed way of, of thinking. Um, it's extreme egoism, maybe to put it in, in other terms. And so that's there. But I think that we find in India that those... Um, those understandings, and let's say something like river worship, involves not just ways of thinking of the world, but involves actions that both express and nurture and even create some of those deep understandings and emotional connections. And I would say that this is, this is what I like to call effectual insight. There's a man that I, when I was doing a study of um, the Yamuna River that produced the book River of Love in an Age of Pollution, I would spend hours and hours just watching people worship the river. And there was a man one day who really caught my attention just for the sincerity of his actions and the depth of what he was doing. And so I, when he was finished, I never interrupt people in those kind of acts. When he was finished, we had a conversation. And he too said, the pollution of the river is because our hearts are polluted. And we're not, because of that, we're not able to see the true nature of the river itself. And so I asked him more about his own story, and he told me that there was a time that he just dismissed the river as a polluted river and saw it as a, quote, mm -hmm. ordinary river, whatever that is. Um, but his guru, whom he had recently met, told him he should worship the river. So he began worshiping the river with some resistance just because his guru told him to do that. And he reported to me that as he worshiped the river, she began to reveal herself to him, and he began to fall in love with her. And once he fell in love with her, he didn't need, then that motivated further devotional action toward her, which produced more love, which motivated him more. So he called that ever-expanding circle of love. Yeah. Um, so that somehow... There's a statement in this area, which means that the beloved is found precisely through love itself. 
And so if a person comes up and they're screaming in your face, we draw back, we we conceal ourselves from that person. Mm-hmm. If a person approaches us in a very loving way, we come out and we reveal ourselves to that person. So um, those I talked to are saying it's like that with her, with the river. If we approach her in uh, in um, harmful ways, in, in violent ways, then she's not going to reveal herself. And it's mm-hmm. in the acts of love that she has moved to reveal herself. And that that is the um the, the opening that is really found through the process of love. So love is both an action, it's an action of of loving service to something, some being in the world, some person in the world, like a natural entity, like a river in India, mm-hmm. as well as it, it's, it's, it's that emotional, deep emotional thing that we call yeah. love. It yeah. kind of, it reminds me of like Newton's laws of motion where every for every action there's an equal reaction. And it's almost like if you give something, then you will have a force of love given back to you almost there was one thing that i did want to come back to this idea of like our hearts being polluted where does uh where does that pollution like that internal pollution come from and what can people do about it if i guess like rid themselves of that you're asking specifically about the internal pollution that lena gupta referred to yeah where does that what is what is she, I guess, referring to specifically? Like, where does it come from? What is it? Yeah. Well, she when she's saying that it um, that it is that sense of being separate. That's why the term that I introduced a little while ago is egoism, and in a sense, maybe if religions agree on anything, it's that that is the central problem in human existence. So violence in our society, and we're seeing lots of it today, has to do with an extreme othering of the other, right? So that the degree to which we understand that we're really we're really all part of a connected, interconnected world, is the degree to which that kind of violence makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to stick a knife in our own body unless we have some psychological disturbance. But um, people stick knives in other bodies and do much worse things because they're other than them. So Mm -hmm. it's that recognition that our larger being, our larger self, maybe to use a Vedantic Indian concept, is a radically interconnected one. And when we become disconnected, whether it's from human beings or whether we become disconnected from the more than human world, which all has personhood, according to many of the religious traditions of the world, then the result is one of harshness, um, mistreatment of the other, etc. So I think that's it. And where that comes from, <laughs> that, that's a big question. But it just seems to be, as I say, a common feature in religion is to overcome that kind of selfishness, that egoism, that arrogance, mm-hmm. and through a process of interconnectedness, of feeling oneness mm-hmm. with others, a humility with regard to our own being. Right. So the pollution is this the sense of separateness 
between the self and everything else that is a result of the ego. Yeah, that's it. So the question, the more important question is, what do we do about that? Yeah. <laughs> that's the golden but, question. Yeah, but I've just given one in terms of mm-hmm. concrete form of, uh, of of interaction, reverent interaction, yes. uh, respectful interaction, whether that's with a human person or uh, let's say a natural entity like a river. Right. One of the one of the things that I personally like as an idea I feel quite passionate about is this idea of like interdisciplinary problems uh, calling for interdisciplinary solutions. So I guess like considering water pollution itself a very interdisciplinary problem with a lot of forces at play, how do people balance the fact that we're like living in a world that wants to maintain or increase the rate of economic development, but also develop a sense of environmental stewardship? How do how would people, I guess, balance that conflict? Yeah, well, I, again, that, that's a good question, but a very difficult question. And I don't claim that I have a single answer to that. It, in many ways, it, it, it's asking the question, what is economic development? And we tend to think of economic development as separate from sustainable presence behavior in the world. And we we um, yeah, see them in many ways opposed to each other. And they are, because as this gets us into the realm of power and politics, um, there there is a, a clash of worldviews that are going on, I think, in this kind of situation where... Uh, one is uh, a, a worldview of utilitarianism and understand that everything outside of humanity is for human use. <laughs> and that leads to more of an ex- uh, exploitive relationship with the world. The other one is um, one of more of reverence and mutual care. Um, and that's more associated with sustainability. If, if there's anything that I would want to say that we need to do, it is to remember that people care and earth care are not separate things, that the health of people on the planet is completely dependent upon the health of the planet itself. And many of these forms of economic development really, I think, forget that in significant ways. Mm-hmm. So it's understanding that sustainability and economic development have to be united ultimately, or there really is a very gloomy future for humanity. Are there any particular examples, uh, I guess, specifically in regards to the river, the Yamuna? That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that in in which this has this conflict has been like success addressed somewhat successfully, or are there not really any examples yet? And we just have to keep working. <laughs> well, yeah, again, difficult. Um, I published uh, or did the research on my book River of Love in an Age of Pollution now slightly more than two decades ago, and and uh, when I finished that book, I think I was more hopeful than I am now. 
but I did try to showcase signs of hope and um, how religious motivation had led to actual changes in the pollution of the river and also that supported um, certain kinds of economic development because mm -hmm. the area that I'm, I'm most familiar with uh, running through the Yamna where I had my swimming experiences early on is a pilgrimage site. And the river is a significant feature that draws pilgrims to that site. If the river disappears, if the river is so polluted, it, it, one can't interact with it, then, um, then pilgrims are not going to be as drawn to that area. So I think we're understanding the degree to which a, a sacred site is kept in some environmentally healthy condition is directly tied to the economic um, development in that area itself. Mm -hmm. Is it, do you think like, um, that it's more about the present, that it's about the preservation of sacred sites as well as like creating new kind of opportunities for this um, in places that I guess hasn't been established or would it be maintaining the economic development and like the kind of urban settings that we have and then um, making more of an effort to preserve the sacred sites. Yeah, and I think in some sense people are, are doing that, not in any big necessarily public way, but they're doing it. I also uh, have studied um, the worshipful interaction with trees in India in my book, People Trees. And when I'm working on a book, I'm usually you know, invited to give talks at various universities and colleges. And at the end of my public talk, inevitably, I just came to expect this to happen, not during the public question and answer period, but after the that was all finished, people would come up to me privately and say, let me tell you about my special tree. Let me tell you about my relationship with this particular tree. And I came to understand that although something like um, worshipful interaction with a tree is very much on the periphery of American society. It's it's present, um, and that so that that people are developing their own ways. And I live in southern Indiana, and it's not unusual to encounter a tree out in the forest that I can see someone is interacting with in uh, a significant way they have a relationship with that tree that they're expressing through maybe their own spontaneous actions, something that they've been uh, inspired by in other religious traditions, maybe encounter with some of the indigenous uh, societies that are still present in the United States, um, but they incorporate that into their interaction with trees. There's many ways of doing that. It could just be I'm kind of a tree hugger. <laughs> so hug a tree is an interesting experience if one is open to it. And however that is, but it could just be an aesthetic appreciation mm -hmm. of the beauty of some natural entity, whether it's a mountain or a tree or a river. I think that there's a lot, and there and there is a history of that even within the, the United States of 
of a deep appreciation that has led to conservation. I think of a figure like John Muir, who wrote mm -hmm. about his early encounter with Redwood and how that was that was a religious experience for him that motivated much of his later work. Mm -hmm. How, I guess, following on from that, how would people balance scientific perspectives that they have with like religious and cultural ideas as well, uh, when I guess like scientific ideas can often seem at odds with religious or spiritual ideas about rivers or trees and other things. Yeah, I have found that that's much less the case in India than in the United States. Um, there seems to be a more combative relationship often um, expressed in religious worldviews and scientific worldviews in the United States. I have found that not generally the case in India. And I think a lot of it has to do with the sense of just a different worldview and the, and the interconnected nature of the world. So something like um, the proposal that human beings are related to other uh, animals on the planet is not a radical notion in India whatsoever, where for some people that just uh, pushes religious buttons that are difficult for them. Um, and maybe an example I could draw from um, my research on the Yamuna River or rivers in India would be um, with a figure that in Banaras or Varanasi, um, that place that many people know, seeing pictures of people bathing in the river with big steps in the background. In that particular um, city in India, one of the leading figures, he is no longer alive, but one of the leading figures that um, I had conversations with back um, a couple decades ago was a man who was just known generally as Mahanti, or his full name was uh, Virbhadra Mishra. He was a priest. Mahant means that he was the head priest in a very important temple in Benares itself. So he was deeply involved in a religious world. He was also a professor of hydraulic engineering in one of the most important universities in that city. So he's an example of one who doesn't see a divide between his life as a scientist or a hydraulic engineer and um, his his religious life, so that that and and I think we're seeing that in the United States more and more because mm -hmm. um, the the very foundation of biology, and particularly something like evolutionary biology, is the understanding that everything is is interconnected. So that ecology is a study of the relationships of how different organisms are are connected to each other. So that, that notion of interconnectedness mm -hmm. of, of all life is really just a fundamental notion in the biological fields today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely a common idea, at least in the US and in the UK, because that's what I know, <laughs> um, that to be very religious or spiritual is indirectly proportion proportional to how scientific you are or even people think like as your intelligence 
itself like if you're more intelligent you're you can't possibly be more religious or spiritual as well whereas i guess what you're saying is that that's not necessarily the case everywhere yeah and i would i would also want to press that it's not necessarily the case in uk and usa these days but but it's it's a development and religion is always changing it's always changing any student of religion sees that that even a tradition that we might call as christianity there's no such thing as christianity buddhism or hinduism there's only buddhisms hinduisms and christianities so there's many different forms and religion is is always changing and it's changing to a large degree by the pressures of a particular historical moment the i would say that the biggest pressures today are the in coming from the environmental crises and there's lots of crises on the planet we're seeing wars like have not taken place in a while and so there's lots of challenges but if we don't get the environmental crises somehow solved then then there's really very little hope for a healthy future for human beings Mm -hmm. at all so yeah and like you said it's not like there's just oh there's an environmental problem and then there's a food problem and then there's a social justice problem they're all they're all connected to each other so in solving the environmental problem you're also helping people provide themselves with more food or with healthier air or with waters to fit fish and they're all part of each other well maybe just to give a concrete example um I so science tells us that we're made up we human beings are made up of something like 70% water a little more than that mm-hmm. so in a sense but but what are the implications of that just a basic scientific fact right that we're mostly water and you could say that we're um walking bags of water and <laughs> The water that I drink every day in my home is coming from a a big reservoir called Lake Monroe. And so that I'm not just a walking bag of water, I'm a walking bag of Lake Monroe. All my friends, all my loved ones, everyone in my town, in my region, is a walking bag of Lake Monroe. So that if toxins are put in that lake, then the toxins are going to be in my body, my children's body, my friend's body. It's everyone's body. No one's body here is separate from Lake Monroe. Mm-hmm. And that's a scientific, that's coming from just a basic scientific uh, fact and work in the implications of that. And there are people who actually, uh, in many ways, have developed, I would say, even a reverential attitude towards that lake and are working very hard to try to protect it from uh, any threat that the lake is under. And every place is a, is a threat. So just coming back again to that notion that there, there is no healthy human life without healthy water, healthy air, healthy soils, etc., what kind of daily practices can people adopt to to show their reverence for nature and then also reduce pollution in their in their local water bodies? Yeah, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I think uh, just coming back to spending time with them, we're living more and more in virtual worlds, and people even look at beautiful worlds of nature on their computer screens, and that that's a good thing. But I think uh, put on a coat and go outside and go some of this. Go visit the trees in your local national forest or national park or whatever, or just the, the, the tree down the street. Spend time with the more than human world. 
spending a significant time, I think, and then again, developing some kind of relationship. Oh, I'm spending time to me also involves opening oneself to the notion that you don't even know exactly what that being is. Mm-hmm. So experiencing beyond, so we're back to that yeah. uh, quote by Thoreau. And because again, it's what we feel connected to is what we care for. So is that, that's like, going for a walk or I've heard some people like you said before like tree hugging as well and um things like that where it's about making a like a deliberate effort to notice um the different things that you see and acknowledge them and almost like pay your respects as though it was a person and it's like a living thing and it's something you see all the time, um, but you don't necessarily like notice or go out of your way to notice. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's it. Notice it, open oneself to it. Mm-hmm. We we live in tiny worlds in many ways. We're just constantly chattering away and usually complaining about something inside <laughs> of the world. So how to get out of our own head and, and some of it is just understanding that we have a larger self. It's not just the self of that person identified by the name on your driver's license. You have a much, much, much larger self. We're more than we ever imagined we are. And it's somehow opening to that, that magic of the world through the magic of our own being. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's a process even of self-discovery to... Mm-hmm to develop connections and relationships with other human beings. That one, in some sense, I think many, many would agree with. But I'm I'm not stopping at the human boundary. It's beyond that. How do we involve young children um, in this kind of upbringing when we're talking about like educating future generations in a way that instills this in them? How can we involve young people in, in conservation efforts like this? Yeah, first again, get get children out playing with the magic of the world, the magic of water. Give them that experience, experience I had in swimming in the Yamuna River. Um, I When I was doing my research, my son was um, five years old. And so I would take him down to the river and he had heard my stories of swimming in the river. I wouldn't let him swim in the river. And, and that's that's part of the problem. So it does require clean water if we are going to encourage our children to swim in a particular body of water, which means that then parents are incentivized to clean up the world so that their children have a place to play in the world. So it's really, it's, it's both of those. Again, it's that it's, it's that that experience leads to a kind of appreciation of something like a body of water, mm-hmm. which leads them to a desire to protect it. And I think children are a great motivating factor. We want a safe world for our children to, to play in, to experience, to live in, to thrive in. Yeah. And I guess like a lot of, a lot of children don't do that anymore. So it's, it's beneficial. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of literature written about um, the, the the kind of the, the iPads, <laughs> iPads and computers and everything. How do I guess like a lot of a lot of times it's very easy to get disheartened by the state of the environment um, and I guess just just generally even the problems that are going on in the world, specifically for I guess water pollution though. How can people stay 
motivated and inspired to make a long-term commitment to environmental activism, like the activists in the book. Again, a very important issue that you're you're raising. I, I think it's understand a lot of it has to do with hope and optimism for people. And I once heard a, a speaker say that she was often asked whether she was optimistic or pessimistic. Would we actually be able to solve the environmental crises and have a, a some kind of healthy future in which humans can thrive? And she said that she actually refuses to answer the question when she's asked that, because she thinks that people are basically looking for excuse not to act. If you tell them you're hopeful, they think, okay, we're going to make it. There's not, I don't have to do anything. If you tell them that you're pessimistic, there's no hope, then um, they say, well, then I might as well not do anything. So <laughs> she said, it's really a matter of love. So coming back to that word that I've used many times here, that it, it's a choice to how you want to be in your life, how you want to be in the world, regardless of the outcome. No great hero in any great story knew the outcome. It's somehow a commitment uh, to, to something itself, regardless of the outcome. How do you want to live your life? And do you want to live it shut off? Do you want to live it in some narrow, constrained fashion? Or do you want to open up to the magic, back to Thoreau's world, of this world that we actually live in here? Yeah, I listened, I actually listened to, uh, I guess, a, a podcast yesterday, and it was, it discussed something similar where it said something like a lot of, pe- a lot of young people, they go through a set of stages when they, they encounter these problems. And the first stage is optimism and wanting to, wanting to make a difference and then setting out and doing it. And then they gain knowledge and then they become cynical. And then actually a lot of people just stop at cynicism and then never move beyond that. And because they've stopped at cynicism, they don't act. Um, And that really the cynicism ends up acting as this excuse, like do anything. And that really where you want to be is not necessarily being super cynical or being optimistic, but you want to get to the point where you're acting. And like you said, like you're making a commitment to trying to address a problem yeah i think it's definitely very prevalent this like negative view about like it's not the situation isn't great but so important to make an effort i mean i i think that there's a special kind of love available to human beings today Mm -hmm. that's in many ways quite unique when europeans first landed on the eastern seaboard of the united states they encountered a vast vast forest they say that a squirrel could travel from Um, Maine to Mississippi without ever touching the ground. Um, That's not the forest that is out there today. There's very little of it left in many places that the world. So then they experienced a powerful world. Our world is is, uh, heavily compromised by human presence. It's sick and some people even say dying. And I think of this like a parent who has a child who has a grave illness Do you just walk away from the child? A parent who loves that child does not do that. Mm -hmm. Care for that child, even if the illness is a terminal illness. They care for that child with a deep, tender love. I think that's the kind of love that is possible. We can't 
the, the world is not healthy. The environment is not healthy because of human behavior on the planet. And mm-hmm. to, to be cynical is like walking away from that poor little child in the sick bed. Mm-hmm. It, it just comes back to how do you want to live your life? Are you committed to a loving presence? Or do you want to shut yourself off and go for that game of beating everyone else at getting the most toys or whatever the game is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of people, they're also part of the reason why they stay at that, like, that place of cynicism is because they get overwhelmed where they they think, like, I'm only one person. How am I supposed to solve climate change and save all of the endangered species and prevent all this food insecurity and prevent wildfires and like when really you don't have to start with the huge like global problems you can just start locally with okay how do i in my own house how do i reduce our carbon footprint how do i prevent food waste in my house and then you can go a little bit wider and you can look at your community and you can you know like maybe if you have a particular lake and you go okay how do i improve the situation for this lake or and a a lot of people they don't they just like they go too big and then they get this this discouraged yeah no and yeah i think you said very very well is that it's finding some local issue and um i mean it's like we're we're designed to work with particulars anyway. Something like universal human love is a um, very noble idea, and we need much more of it in the world today. But we know the kind of love that really zings us, that motivates us, is love of a particular person. And But that particular person is not, ultimately, some sense, radically cut off from other people. So it does, th- those two kinds of love are connected, but we have to act through love of a particular. So if you love a particular forest or a particular river, you're committed to that. And I think you're right. It's what's in your face. And we work locally with what's there. And we find that people across the planet are doing that. So one's never alone. You don't have to do it all. Many, many people are there with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, find find something that is sustainable for yourself, that works for a sustainability for humanity and for all beings on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're coming to the end of our time. And I was wondering, is there anything else that we we haven't discussed that you would like to cover? Well, I've made a brief reference to them, but um, it's not just rivers. So we've talked mostly about rivers. I've made some um, references also to trees and forests, but Mm -hmm. it's really at all. And everything we're talking about is not only applicable to how we treat other people, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it's also applicable to how we treat other natural entities in the world besides rivers. Well, with that said... Are you ready for the quick fire questions? Um, sure. <laughs> um, so the first one is, if you live to be 200, what's one thing you would do differently? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what yeah, I would do differently. I, I think I would try to open myself more and more. You're talking about future, what would I have done in the past? Or what, yeah, the what, future. What, what, future. Yeah, 
I would want to do everything I'm saying. <laughs> I want to do it more <laughs> to say these things, but I guess I would like to open myself more and more, experience the world more and more. And I have spent my life as a um, educator, as a college professor, teaching young folks. And I, I would like to find ways of working with young folks more and more. I have been involved in um, environmental activism myself, primarily with forest protection and climate change. I, I would like to somehow engage young folks more and more in that, to learn from them. So I guess it's it's just diving deeper into what I've already done because mm -hmm. so much of what I'm speaking of today is what I've discovered through my many years. Yeah, if I had 200 years left or if <laughs> whatever I have left, that that's really what I'd like to do. And I suppose that is a question that I'm asking myself today. How can I do that? What is one misconception about your field or area of study that you would like to debunk? I suppose that that religious studies is misunderstood many times as being um, about converting. I mean, that's the fear that it's about studying other religions to become religious in that particular way. Mm -hmm. That's a complete misunderstanding of religious studies. Religious studies aims for a deep understanding of others and an openness in one's own self to other human possibilities, so mm -hmm. that. Again, we can live a very narrow life defined by a particular role that we've inherited through our socialization process in a particular family. And many people do that. But we have the opportunity through the study of other religions that religious studies involves to open ourselves to ways of human being. And we as a human being have possibilities in taking much of that on. So again, religious studies is about deep understanding and broadening our horizon of human possibilities. Um, what's the worst advice you've been given? <laughs> <laughs> My father was a great man and gave me lots of good <laughs> advice. But when I decided to become a religious studies major, he told me that that was incredibly impractical and I should not do that. Um, but, um, and he said, I would never make a living at it, but uh, <laughs> I just retired last year after a very full career of teaching and made a good career of it. And my father actually ended up seeing that and has read every book that I have written. So, um, it worked out well, but his advice was don't do that. Take over the family company, which was an electrical. Study something company. practical, <laughs> something. <laughs> something practical. Yeah. But the question is, what are we here for? And I've always said, um, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that, but I know we're here for more than a job. Mm -hmm. And the studies has opened me personally to a world that is vast and one that I greatly appreciate. Claire Boothloose once told President Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What's your sentence? <laughs> Yeah, I always have a hard time putting things down in such sense, but I would say um, the pursuit of difference. Mm -hmm. That is what motivated me. So a playful openness to the vast and different ways of being human. I like That's that. Um, and then the, the last question is from a previous guest, and it is, what book do you wish you had written? <laughs> 
I almost want to say the Bhagavad Gita because I just think it's such an amazing text uh, of, of all the texts I've read. But let me actually, in thinking about this, let me say um, The Body of God by Sally McVeigh. The Body of God, Sally McVeigh also died not that long ago, um, was an eco-theologian. And she came out of the Protestant tradition. She taught at the um, Vanderbilt um, Divinity School. And I, I you teach her book often with students because it's an example of what's happening within Protestant Christianity, mm-hmm. a tradition that many assume that boundary is hard. In the body of God, she articulates um, as a biblical theologian, an understanding of Christianity focusing on the concept of incarnation, where she regards the entire world as the body of God. Mm-hmm. With uh, she lays out the ecological implications of that in ways too. I think it's a book that in the Western cultures who have tended to lead a lot of these scientific and um, industrial. Um, you know, developments in the world that we're seeing worldwide. It, it, it's a book that helps us understand the possibilities within that very tradition. No one needs to convert to another religion <laughs> to solve the environmental problem. But I think all religious traditions actually currently are thinking deeply about what their tradition says about the value of the more than human world and the human presence in that world. So yeah, you know, the, the Body Very of God by Sally McVeigh. Is that book um, available online or? I don't know, but the answer to that, I'll let those who are more savvy with online reading <laughs> figure that out. But yeah, McVeigh is um, M-C-F, again, capital F-A-G-U-E, The Body of God. I th- it's easy to find and it's not an expensive paperback book. If I find it, I'll try and put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. If if the listeners would like to to find out more about your work or reach out to you, where can they go? Well, I've uh, so I've written three books on the three entities that I've talked about today. River of Love and Age of Pollution is about the Yamuna River in northern India. Um, I've also written a book about trees and tree worship, uh, particularly in the context of tree shrines in, in India. And that book is called People Trees, because there I, I track the, the notion of personhood of trees, which is uh, widely, widely accepted within Indian culture um, today. So People Trees, Worship of Trees in Northern India. And then my last book is called Loving Stones. Um, which is looking at probably the hardest category for people to come to accept. But um, thinking of stones as having a presence, a personhood, some kind of being one can connect with in deep ways. So I, I, I engaged in a study where people are doing precisely that. But I understand, too, that this is a, is a stretch. So the subtitle to that book is Making the Impossible Possible in the Worship of Mount Govardhan, where the whole mountain is regarded as a form of divinity, and each stone is, uh, from it is, is also regarded in such fashion. So that that takes one into a much wider view because the idea that a tree is a sentient being is a stretch, but it's acceptable to many people. The mm-hmm. idea of 
stone can be that. So that subtitle gets it. It both people worship this mountain and stones to make things that seem impossible possible, but it's also used a subtitle to identify my challenge as a cultural translator to translate something that seems that alien to people into something that is sensible and valid. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that one is um, Loving Stones, the main title. And yeah. both books are Oxford University Press books. I'll put and, a link to those. And <laughs> I know that Loving Stones definitely can be read online and purchased mm -hmm. online. Yeah, I was able to find. Yeah, well, I think we've reached the end of our uh, conversation. I really appreciated talking to you. Um, it was very insightful. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed meeting you and talking with you today. So thank you for inviting me. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed that discussion. If you are interested in reaching out to Dr. Halberman and checking out more of his work, please do take a look at the show notes. There, you will also find the link to the Green Also Green website and Instagram page. If you would like to stay updated on the Sustainable Spirit podcast and Green Also Green, you can make sure to follow on Instagram and subscribe to the email newsletter, which is released once a month and will not clutter your inbox. If you want to otherwise support this podcast, please leave a review and share it with a friend, a stranger, an acquaintance, or an enemy. It's still a baby podcast taking its first steps into the world. So every single one of you out there listening, downloading, sharing, and spreading the word are making a difference and setting a trend. So thank you. I'm grateful for you. That said, I can't wait to see you next episode. Until then, keep asking big questions with a big heart.